the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another Crime Estate episode. And I just need to give you a heads up that this week's episode is one you are not going to want to miss. I mean, okay, not that you ever really want to miss one of our episodes, but this week we are covering one of the most infamous crimes of our generation, one you have probably all heard of. But in covering this story, we are going to do something for the first time here on this podcast today. Not only do you have me and Elena and our producer, Melanie, bringing you the story, but we are also being joined by Adrian, who lived in the home where the crime occurred for many years. As it turns out, Adrian is a friend of a friend of mine who loves our podcast. So, of course, my girlfriend connected us and Adrian graciously agreed to an interview and chat session with us. Yeah, I love this because it's always been kind of a goal of ours. And we have lots of goals for the podcast, but um, to actually interview someone who lived in the house where the crime occurred or any inside track that we have on anything has been a goal. So this is going to be great. Thank you, Adrian, so much for chatting with us. This has actually been a really fun episode to put together, and we should let our listeners know that we actually interviewed Adrienne a few weeks ago. Um, this was kind of exciting for us. She is out in the Bay Area, so we explored using Zoom for some recordings. So bear with us a bit as we figure out the logistics of this format. And if you like this kind of segment where we interview a homeowner or someone involved in the story, let us know. And of course, if you know someone that is somehow related to a, a, a house or a crime, let us know because we would love to bring more of these uh, type of stories to you. That's right. Now, of course, before we jump right into chatting with Adrienne and asking her all of our questions, um, y'all would probably like to know which story we're going to cover today. Well, I mean, we know, but I bet everyone else wants to know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier that this is one of the most infamous crimes of our generation. And beyond it just being a devastating and horrific crime that received national media attention, it was also the driving force behind the institution of California's three strikes and your outlaw, which really is a significant piece of criminal justice reform that's still being debated to this day. Mm-hmm. So on to the actual event. Now, on October 1st, 1993, just over 30 years ago this month, a young 12-year-old girl by the name of Polly Class did what many other young teenagers do every week. She conspired with her two friends to have a sleepover. Now, if you're a parent of the child over 10 years old, you know this game well. It often starts with, hey, mom, can so-and-so spend the night tonight? And before you know it, the kids are off and running with their plans for pizza, popcorn, movies, and video games. It's definitely like that at our household every Friday. Oh, yeah, mine too. And this is why we find... Polly and her friends Kate and Jillian sleeping over at Polly's house at 417 4th Street in the sleepy Northern California small town of Petaluma, California on the night of October 1st. For those of you that are not entirely familiar with California geography, Petaluma sits about a 30 miles north of San Francisco, just south of the wine country. It's actually in Sonoma County. And because we always like to set the scene for you, we've asked Adrian to tell us about this town. Well, Petaluma, you know, um, 
is a, it's a small farm. It was a, it's a dairy, it's a dairy town. Uh, the Petaluma eggs, it's like, it's known for its, its egg farms. And, um, our house that we bought there was, uh, purchased, it was built in 1907 and it was, uh, a small like farmhouse for people who worked the farm. So it was a, it was a, like a laborer's house. And, um, we lived very close to the downtown area. The da- the old downtown of Petaluma is a- adorable. I mean, it's, it's quaint. It's got little boutiques and it's still like that today. It's boutiques and small mom and pop shops, um, little restaurants and cafes and bars. And, um, it's on the Petaluma river, which at one point in time was a pretty large area for trade, um, into that area. And, um, we loved it. I mean, it was, we had looked at moving to, um, moving to Sonoma, but for a young married couple, just getting started out, it was just way out of our price range, but Petaluma wasn't. And my husband got a job up in the Santa Rosa area and we found, we, we found a realtor and we were like, let's move to, let's, we liked all the wineries up there and we got married in Sonoma and, um, we were like, let's move up to the wine country. I think it would be really fun. And so we thought it was a really nice place to raise kids. It's small, it's quaint, it's old. It has a, a town center, which I really loved and appreciated from, being in Sonoma, um, you know, it has that darling little square plaza if you've never been to Sonoma. So um, Petaluma is very similar and great schools and just a really nice community. Um, They have like a butter and eggs day parade every year. That's just adorable. A lot of the kids are really involved in 4-H. It's just a lovely little farming community and it's super close to the beach and it's super close to the mountains and it's right in between and in the wine country, and it was just, it had everything that we wanted. And it still is just this darling, quaint little town. My best friend lives there. I go there all the time. Listening to Adrian describe Petaluma, it sounds like a place that we would all really like. She describes a town that feels small and safe, a town where a Friday night sleepover between friends would just be commonplace. Yeah, you're so right. Um, so let's go back to the evening of October 1st. According to her recollection of the evening, Polly's single mom, Eve Nickel, has a headache. And around 10 o'clock, she goes into Polly's room and asks the girls to be a little bit more quiet. And she then takes Polly's little sister, Annie, to her bedroom for the night, you know, so the big girls can hang out in the other bedroom. And then she proceeds to take a migraine pill to get rid of her headache. Now, side note, as someone who unfortunately has to take migraine pills on occasion, I'll say that their main job is really to knock you out. I mean, it's just almost impossible to get rid of a migraine without doing so. And I've thought a lot about this in researching the story. You know, I've definitely taken a migraine pill when I've been in charge of my child by myself, you know, typically once he's already in bed. But putting myself in Eve's shoes, you know, she has three great kids in her house. She isn't really concerned that they're going to leave or get into trouble. And there are really enough of them there to look out for one another. So knowing what's coming and being a mom myself, I just can't imagine how horrible she feels for not being 100% alert that evening. But I also don't think she did anything neglectful or wrong. Um, you know, it was just horrible and tragic timing. And and remember that the house was very small. This is like a cute three bed, three bath, little over a thousand square foot home built in 1907. It's not like she was on the third floor suite of the Ramsey mansion with her kids, you know, thousands of square feet and stories away. 
So according to Polly's friends, Jillian and Kate, there was nothing out of the ordinary about that night until Polly got up from the board game they were playing around 1030 and walked into the living room to get the extra sleeping bags. She opened the door to find a man holding a knife and he screamed at them, don't scream or I'll cut your throats. That's terrifying. That makes my heart hurt for all of them having to go through that. And so as you're telling me this, I'm trying to picture the layout of the house. How did he get in? And was he specifically looking for one of the girls at the slumber party? So I think that's a question that everyone asked. We actually asked Adrian to paint us a picture of the layout of the house. And here's what she had to say. So we walk in, you open the front door. And then as you are walking in to the right was the little front porch. It had a cute little window door um, that we kept. And there was like just a slight little foyer area. And then there was an arch, two arches. The left would go into the living room. And then there was a big, huge arch into the dining room that had another arch from the open foyer. foyer. So it was sort of like a, you know, it was like a round, like you could go around and around in that area. And then there was a bedroom off of the dining room. And then the kitchen was right there. And then there was a doorway into the kitchen. And there was like a... um, they had built-ins. It had beautiful, like, windowed built-ins and, like, a, what did they call it? Like, a butler's door or butler's sliding thing into the kitchen where you just would slide your slide your food out to the dining room. And just the one bathroom in the Jack and Jill, one full bath. And then from the kitchen, you take a, you open the door and you go out onto the back porch where we put our laundry. And there was the second bathroom, the what was it? The half bath. And then you go out. It was it was a thousand square foot home. Teeny tiny little house. So the intruder presumably came in through that back door off of the kitchen porch that Adrian described. And he tells Jillian and Kate to lay down. He gags them with strips of white cloth and ties them up with what investigators call electrical cord, but actually turns out to be the cords from the family's Nintendo system. Mm-hmm. He tells them that he's just after money and Polly is going to take him to get the money. And he then tells Jillian and Kate that they should count to a thousand and he'll have Polly back by then. terrifying. Now, to their credit, Alana, the girls did not wait to count to a thousand. The second they heard the door close, they started trying to get out of their constraints. Jillian, who was a gymnast, was extremely flexible and was able to unbind herself and then untie Kate. And the two girls ran to wake up Polly's mom, Eve. Now, after a quick search of the house, where I should note that Eve's purse is sitting undisturbed, despite the kidnapper's claim that he only wants money, Eve calls 911. Now, we're going to play a short clip of that call for you. 911, pet woman. Yeah. Um, What's the problem? Oh, yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember. You can really hear how out of it she is on the recording. You can almost see her mind trying to slog through the sleep to comprehend what is going on and relay that to the dispatcher. Yeah, you absolutely can. And, you know, to their credit, the police respond very quickly and an extensive search for Polly is underway. Now, only a few hours after Polly's disappearance and only about 30 minutes north in the town of Santa Rosa, something else odd is happening. Dana Jaffe, a chef at a Sonoma restaurant, is returning home from work. She lives at 7565 Pythian Road, which is described as remote. Uh, The location is also identified as 7565 Highway 12 or 7565 Sonoma Highway. 
And to reach this property, a traveler turns off of Highway 12 onto Pythian Road. Once on Pythian Road, there is a large, beautiful winery on the right. And then the road begins a slow, gentle climb up the hill, where it soon narrows until two cars can barely pass one another. The climb becomes steeper, and at the end of the road, there is a gate with a no trespassing and beware of guard dogs sign. So basically very remote. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have highway in your address, you know you're out there somewhere. To me, it feels like somebody has to know where they're going. This isn't somewhere that you just stumble upon. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. So Dana arrives home late, and she sends the nanny who's actually watching her own 12-year-old daughter on her way. So as the nanny leaves, she sees a white car on the side of the road, which is odd given the remoteness of the location and the time of night. So she, you know, she pulls over like a good Samaritan to see what is going on. And a man walks over to her car. The nanny had her driver's side window slightly cracked. And the man walks over to the window, puts his fingers into the car and tells her to open the door and help him. No, 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 no. 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 And, you know, I I was thinking about this. Remember, this is pre-cell phones. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I probably would have, like, called 911 and said, hey, there's somebody on the side of the road, given that it was so remote and so dark. But that really wasn't an option Mm -hmm. back then. So, on what has to be one of the best decisions of her life, the nanny quickly leaves the scene. And when she gets into town, she calls Dana to tell her about the odd encounter. Now, Dana and her daughter get in the car to check out what's going on. And when they arrive at the car, it's been abandoned. So Dana calls the police to tell them that she has a trespasser. By the time the police arrive, the man is back standing beside the vehicle. They note that he is nervous and sweating and has debris on his clothes. Dana characterized him as disheveled and said he reeked. She's actually quoted as saying, I would say he was panic-stricken and I smelled fear. The police did a search of his driver's license and it didn't turn up any current warrants against him. So after pulling his car out of the ditch, they released the driver. They asked Dana Jaffe if she wanted to perform a citizen's arrest for trespassing. And under California law, a citizen must make an arrest for this type of misdemeanor. The property owner would have to have gone to the car with the deputies and say, I arrest you. That's super interesting. I thought that only happened on television. Yeah. Like, I think about the Andy Griffith show. Right, right. So... You know, I'm just not sure that's something I would be comfortable doing personally. And when the police mentioned to Dana that by doing so, the man would actually have to come back later for his car, she decided she wanted to get rid of him quickly and ended up not pressing charges against him for trespassing. So back in Petaluma, within 30 minutes of Polly being reported missing, the police had put out an APB, an all-points bulletin for those of you new to true crime stories but had marked it, quote, not for press release. They didn't want the media to get a hold of the information. That's mind-blowing. If it were one of my kids, I'd want it blast everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Does make any sense? So, yeah, the APB was broadcast on the chip. <laughs> you know, like, remember that old TV show, The Chips, which is actually the California Highway Patrol Channel, which only chip radios could receive. Now, practices really changed a lot after this case, but and the radio system was further upgraded, and now bulletins are broadcast on all police channels through a centralized 911 dispatch system. But at the time, but at the time of the polyclass case, it was only communicated locally on Channel 1, which was the Sonoma County Sheriff's Channel, 
Um, but why they want the media to be notified, to, did not want the media to be notified of the kidnapping, that's a mystery to me. I mean, really, this was pre, you know, all those things like Amber Alert, all those things that we t- know about nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't seem so long ago, but it was vastly different time in how they related to uh, kidnapping or even like child abduction in general. Right. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of their intent, it's really because of this decision that the police who had pulled over Richard Allen Davis on Pythian Road late on the night of October 1st didn't know that a child from a neighboring town was missing. Mm. While they were Sonoma Valley police, they had only had access to Channel 3 reports. And like Melanie said, this was broadcast on Channel 1. And because it wasn't standard operating procedure at the time, they also didn't check for a criminal history which would have definitely given them cause to detain him. They did do one good thing, though. They filled out an FI, or field interrogation card, with all of Davis's details on it, including that he was the driver of the Ford Pinto that night. And this will be key later on. Because Richard Allen Davis had a rap sheet a mile long and dating back two decades. He had grown up in San Francisco, Um, you know, sort of in that area to alcoholic and abusive parents. And by his early teens, he was already involved in petty crimes. He was convicted in 1976 for kidnapping and assaulting a woman and served five years in prison for that crime. And again, in 1984, a second conviction for kidnapping and other charges brought him a 16-year sentence of which he served eight. Mm -hmm. He had multiple other arrests for burglary and was known around town for public intoxication. But the police didn't know any of that, and they also did not find Polly Class that evening. In fact, it would be another two months before they got a lead that eventually led them to identifying a suspect in Polly's abduction. So during this time, there was an intense investigation into Polly's disappearance. Kim Cross, a journalist and author of In the Light of All Darkness, Inside the Polly Class Kidnapping and the Search of America's Child, explained that her kidnapping profoundly impacted how the FBI responds to child abduction cases in the U.S. In her book, she discusses how it was the first time the FBI used special technology to collect fingerprints, collect fibers, and other evidence, which really was just not traditionally used at that point. And over the next two months, about 4,000 people helped search for class. The search involved both humans and dogs and took place over 1,000 square miles of ground surrounding Petaluma. TV shows such as 2020 and America's Most Wanted covered the kidnapping. And Polly's missing poster was also a first for its time, guys. The rise in technology by 1993 meant that the images were able to be digitized and of a greater quality than any other missing child poster ever before. So searchers banded together to create an electronic version of the poster that was being passed out by hand in the surrounding areas. And then this electronic version was then shared by online bulletin boards. You know, you guys remember like AOL and CompuServe. Mm -hmm. So throughout the Bay Area, they were able to share that and even really internationally. This was the first time that the burgeoning internet was used in a missing persons case and revolutionary for its time. You know, it's just sort of common practice today. Right. 
Yeah, I read some really interesting articles about this, um, interviews with the people that actually, um, uh, one lady who lived in that area, that when she first heard about the poly class story, her immediate reaction was she wanted to go searching for them. And But she was a technology writer and um, working in the San Francisco area. And she thought, well, what could I uh, mm. bring to the story? And so she got together all these people to, to really um, promote it. And it, it really was so interesting interesting that this was the beginning because today you're right we think this is how you communicate mm-hmm. about crime or, or missing people and but at that time it was a new new technology not to be totally flippant but um if they could come up with technology for silent leaf blowers that would be really nice so if you're hearing any background <laughs> noise uh know that we are recording while everybody in my neighborhood's lawn is being taken care of right now it is amazing how they all want to do it whenever we're recording. Yeah, and I should note, we're actually recording a little bit earlier than we normally do, but so we have a fun party to go to your your house, Mel. But. <laughs> and right. if anybody from work is listening, I took today off as a vacation day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but let's, you know, I digress as sometimes I do. Um, let's go back, I mean, to these amazing volunteers that were searching for Polly. Despite all of their efforts, the police weren't having any luck finding her. That is until two months after initially calling police to her property. Dana Jaffe, remember her from earlier in the story? She's out for a hike when she discovers a man's sweatshirt and children's clothing on her land. Remembering the suspicious trespasser from weeks back, she calls the police and she's quoted as saying, I thought this is maybe a crime scene. Yikes. And that's scary. Yeah, very scary. And I mean, what great intuition on her Mm -hmm. part, too. One of the items found, a torn pair of ballet leggings, was matched by the FBI to evidence found on the night of the kidnapping. And a review of calls in the area the day of the kidnapping turned up that initial contact with Davis. This was why it was so important that the deputies had filled out that F1 card that we mentioned earlier. Now they were able to identify him. They finally ran a criminal check on him and discovered his prior rap sheet. A detective working the case said, it had everything you would think an offender would have on his record for somebody for a crime like this. And he'd only been out for about six months. And from here, the arrest of Richard Allen Davis for the kidnapping and murder of Polly Class moves pretty quickly. Investigators are able to match clothing fibers at Polly's house to the clothes found by Dana Jaffe on her hike. And they matched a palm print on Polly's bed to Richard Allen Davis. Yeah. 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 Very quick. So on December 4th, 1993, Davis admitted to investigators that he entered the home at 427 4th Street, tied up Kate and Jillian, and then abducted Polly. He went on to say that Polly was still alive but hidden in the woods when the police when the police initially spoke with him late on the night of October 1st and that he then went back to find her after the officers left strangled her and hid her under lumber and debris from an abandoned sawmill close by. Now obviously officers can't confirm his story and for many reasons they're skeptical that that was the case. Davis also told police that he went to Petaluma on the day of the kidnapping to find his estranged mother and then just decided to kidnap Polly. Police said they don't know what his motives were. And in what might be the only silver lining in this story, Richard Allen Davis took the police to where he buried Polly Class and they were able to recover her remains. 
Now, Davis's trial for murder, kidnapping, and attempted lewd acts and other charges began two and a half years later in April 1996. But difficulty in selecting a jury led the judge to move the trial from Sonoma County to Santa Clara County. Davis was eventually found guilty and sentenced to death. And Polly's abduction and murder are given credit for a change in both how police investigate crimes and how criminals are prosecuted. As we mentioned earlier, many credit this crime for California's three strikes in your outlaw, which went into effect in 1994. And the law was formed to stop repeat offenders from being able to go in and out of prison after committing a serious violent crime. An offender who commits this kind of crime and already has two other convictions will be sentenced to life in prison under the three strikes law. In a tribute to his daughter on classkids.org, which is a nonprofit started by Polly's dad, Mark Class, to help with searches for other missing children and really to work to put laws in place to protect children, as well as put systems in place to quickly find missing children. They, Alana, this was really interesting to me. They actually provide free fingerprinting mm. and photography services for okay. families. Nice. Yeah. So Mark said, 1993 sometimes seems so near that I can reach out and grab it and sometimes so distant that the details are blurred memories. But since very few people who were touched by her plight ever met Polly, I will do my best to tell you about her. She was a very pretty, smart, cheerful, and engaging girl who was just beginning to realize life's potential. She was a skilled actor who could nail the first read through a script. She could ride a bike, had mastered swimming, and wanted me to teach her how to play baseball so that she could play with, quote, the boys. On Sunday evenings, I enjoyed sitting on the couch with Polly on one side and Violet on the other, and Polly and I would cackle at Homer and Bart Simpson's mindless antics while Violet looked at us quizzically and asked what was so funny. Even in life, we thought of Polly as an old soul because of the depth of her compassion and capacity for love. She was the kind of girl who would make her own presence known when she entered the room. When she left, it would be with an unspoken, hey, remember me. Today, Davis is still on death row and lives in solitary confinement in San Quentin State Prison. Actress Winona Ryder, who was also from Petaluma and attended the same school as Polly, came home shortly after Polly's kidnapping, making an appeal to everybody to help find Polly and to come forward if anyone had any information on her whereabouts. She also dedicated the movie Little Women in 1994 to Polly's memory. And as our listeners know, we ask ourselves at the end of each episode if we would live there or if we had listed. And in this case, we know Adrian already lived there. But what I think we all three found fascinating is that Adrian and her husband had no idea that the home they purchased had been the scene of a crime until after they bought the house. Isn't that crazy? We lived in Palo Alto at the time, and the, um, the realtors were very lovely ladies from, uh, they were a, like a realtor team. They're from Santa Rosa. And they said, you know, we'd like you to come. It's like, it's the day of that we're giving the house over to you. So come on up, get your keys, blah, 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 whatever. So we go up to Petaluma and we get our keys. They meet us at the house. They give us our big packet of all of our loan documents and, you know, pest reports and all this stuff. And they drive away and we were like, oh my gosh, we have our house. I think we even took like a picture. They took a picture of the two of us with like our little folder and in front of the house. 
And the little old man from across the street, Jim Butts, God rest his soul, darling guy, um, comes tooling over across the street. And he was like, hi, I'm your neighbor, Jim Butts. He was, you know, in his early 80s. And we were like, hi, we're so excited. And he was like, oh, you bought the Polly house. And we were like, wait, what? He was like, yeah, this is the house where Polly was abducted. And we were like, we just signed like papers that like we just bought this house this is it we we can't go back now it's six like we're done we have our keys like we're done everything is signed sealed delivered and so it took us a little bit off guard and you know it was it was like a crazy set of circumstances and the fact that it wasn't disclosed to us was a little upsetting. The realtors that we had were not from Petaluma. So they didn't know. And legally, I guess, she was abducted from the house, but she wasn't killed in the house. So, I mean, I hate to sound callous, but when we talked about it, we were like, the house was built in 1907. and Farmers' lives were not good, especially like farm workers who did not own the farm. Life was not good. Um, life was hard. Life was dirty and messy. And a lot of people probably got sick and a lot of people probably died. And then the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919 came around. And there were probably a lot of people who I'm assuming that it wasn't just a small family that lived in that house. That was probably a house that was filled with a lot of farm workers that lived there. And there were probably a lot of people who perished in the house. And, you know, I mean, if you go through a, a very long history of a house, of a house's history, you will find tragedy. You will find horrible things that have happened there that aren't necessarily at the hand of another person. And yes, Polly's abduction and her you know, her murder, it was, it's horrible. It's terrible. It is an awful tragedy. It is an unfathomable tragedy that should never have happened. That is every person and parent's worst nightmare. Um, and the reality of the situation is there were probably a lot more sad things that happened there as well. A month after we moved into the house, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. and. We, um, before we moved in, I had a Catholic priest come and bless the house. We're Catholic. Or I'm, I'm very Catholic. My husband also is grew up Catholic, but not as much as I did. Um, <laughs> just not like cut down to him or anything. It's fine. Um, but so we had the local Catholic priest come and bless the house and he had known that it was the polyclass house. So he, was super sweet and very kind and said some very kind words about her in particular when he was blessing the house. And that was lovely. And then, um, we moved in and within a month I threw a beautiful birthday party for my grandma for her 80th birthday. And, um, it was on Valentine's day was her birthday. We threw the party on Saturday, which was the 13th and her birthday was Sunday, the 14th. I wasn't feeling great and I took a pregnancy test on Valentine's Day and found out I was pregnant with my first child. So I was like, you know, 
it's it's been nothing so far and you know the month that we had just moved in um it was nothing but good news and good luck for our family and you know i had my first two beautiful healthy lovely children there um i mean really yeah yeah the house definitely left the house with good memories for sure so Remember. when you all <laughs> sold the house because you sold it in what like oh five or something did you feel like the need yeah. to disclose it at that point we disclosed it yeah we disclosed it but we sold it to a woman and her husband who had lived in Petaluma. So they sort of knew, they knew the history and they even asked, I think they asked. And we had a Petaluma realtor who sold it. And so that made a huge difference because she also knew the history of the house as well. So it was, you know, it, it just was a different, it was a different situation then. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, it was also kind of a different time because Nowadays, I mean, I Google every ad. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's not even like, like I might Google Heather's address, like looking for directions to go to her house. Right. And theoretically, right. like it's just so natural. It's not like I'm stalking. So different. Uh, and so if you put in the address today, it's immediate that it's you immediate. find it. And yeah. I imagine when, you know, people buy into a new neighborhood, oh, look, I want to know what's near my house. I want to, like, or I'm interested, uh, the part, totally. or like, like, I don't, I mean, you can stalk people, but that's not what I'm talking about. Like, I'm just, right. it's just basic research. Totally. It, it's, it's just totally different to show. We didn't have in 20 internet. years, I mean, we, how things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, this was what, um, six years after she was abducted, the internet was like kind of a thing. It was still like dial up. It was, you know, like it wasn't something we were on every day. We didn't, I mean, our cell phones were just like a flip phone. There was no like smartphone or anything. So you bring up a good point. You know, we had to trust who we were buying. We had to trust the the people we were buying from and we had to trust the realtors that they sort of knew, you know, the schools and the district and all that. So now you said when the 10 year anniversary came around that you had a lot of people in front of the house. Did you find people coming by, you know, at other times outside of the anniversary yeah. or was it pretty quiet? Oh, it was constant. It was constant. Yeah. From the day we moved in to the day we moved out, it was constant. Wow. A lot of people walking past, you know, just asking, isn't this the house? Is this the house? You know, and then as the internet became more accessible, that's yeah it became much more much more so and then the 10 year anniversary came and it was every single news agency was out there um tv newspaper you know so it it was a, it was a lot it was a lot it was it was it was um it was sad you know it was just it's sad so one of the questions we always ask each other at the end of each episode is, would you live in the house or would you list the house? I mean, obviously you've lived in the house, but do you have any advice for somebody that might be thinking about buying a pr property where, you know, a crime has occurred? What what would be your two cents of advice that you'd give them? Oh, um, I mean, we had nothing but great luck and love and joy in, in the property. And you know, we always definitely kept the story in our hearts. We always felt 
it was such a tragic situation. She was such a beautiful, sweet little girl. And we did our best to honor her while she, you know, to honor her memory. Um, I think it depends on the situ on the situation. I mean, this was just, if it is what it, what it was, you know, um, where it was a stranger abduction, that is a very, very, very rare occurrence. Most abductions occur with somebody who is familiar with the family, who knows the family, who is, who is a family member. Um, you know, so I think it depends on the circumstance, honestly. And like I said, we had nothing but good luck and success and we never felt like there was like a haunting or any bad, you know, ill will that came. The only thing that we, we didn't love was the attention that was called to the house. Of course. Um, that was a little scary having two small kids and it was, it was a child related, a child related incident that occurred there. So, you know, that was the only thing that I would, that kind of kept us awake at night was like, how safe are we really? Um, especially now that people know the house and, you know, there are some people who become enraged by things like that. Like, how could you have this normal life after knowing what happened here? How could you do this to your kids? How could you, you know, there are a lot of crazy people. So I know I'm not answering your question. Um, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to say. I think it's, a, I think it's a circumstantial, I think it's by circumstance. But being, and how being prepared feel. for the, the onslaught of attention maybe is. Yeah. Especially in a large, in a large case like this one, yeah. this was such a very public case. I mean, like I said, you know, abductions by a stranger, it is everybody's worst absolute worst nightmare you know i it mean it's also, something that doesn't happen often it, it was also a, a very accessible house it wasn't you know up oh, exactly. on the you know road you know no trespassing in a mountain i mean this is something that is it, it partly what drew you to the house was its locality and its convenience yeah and it is in a uh, you know even if it wasn't as touristic at the time, it's still around a lot of tourism nearby. So yeah, and so it, it opened up. up the back was right on a very busy street, which was Petaluma Boulevard. Um, there was a property behind us, but the properties on Petaluma Boulevard are usually businesses, so they're only there, you know, ten to five. So there's nothing behind. There's no security behind. And then it's like the street and then you cross the street and there's other businesses. So it really was, it is a very exposed, it's a very exposed area. And there's the park there. It's surrounded by two parks. Um, you know, we did our best to, to build up the fences and our, our neighbor who owned the corner house, um, which was the exposed side of our house. They had a very high fence with a lattice top and so we sort of like took advantage of that and we built a high fence that was not gated, but in the front, just because there was nothing there. It was just, you could just walk right to the back. Y'all, it's been so fun having Adrienne sort of give her mm -hmm. insights. And, you know, when we first started talking about this podcast, it was, we wanted to start it because we did have so many questions 
about who buys a house where a crime has Mm -hmm. occurred and, you know, did they get a discount on it? Was it disclosed to them? How did they feel about it living there? And Adrian's been so gracious to to share that with us and our listeners. So thank you all. Thank you so much, Adrian. And uh, so I'm curious where, you know, where would you guys fall on this? Would you live in this house? Um, that's a tough one. I think I would. I think I would live there. Only because we spoke with her and she created her own memories there and raised children there and she felt good about it. So I feel like knowing that, having spoken with her, I I would. I feel more comfortable. Well, I think she made a really good point. You know, this house was built in 1907. We have information at our fingertips today that we have not always had. And so, you know, what happened in that house from 1907 to 1975, when we can put our hands easily on records, who knows? And I also think she made the good point that like, yes, the kidnapping occurred there, but the violence of the crime did not Mm -hmm. occur there. And I think that makes a difference somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Mel? No, I I absolutely agree. And just the way that Adrian spoke about that house with such warmth and love mm-hmm. and and uh, honestly was kind of sad that she had sold it because mm-hmm. it was such a happy place for her and her family, despite living there during the 10th anniversary and, and when there was all this press and notoriety on the case and people coming outside of her house and taking pictures and asking questions. I mean, things that would, you know, honestly turn us off. Uh, she still, despite having that, remembers it as being you know the place that she brought her babies mm-hmm, home to mm-hmm. and honestly i think we all have a warmth and a love in our spot in our hearts for where we bring our babies home to and and how we raise them and and i i felt like the way she um explained it to us was that she really kind of uh you know had a really good experience and was able to not negate by any means the horrors that had occurred beforehand but put a spin on it and, and love for the future. So I, I think that, you know, we're not judged by our past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think as always, you always say it so much more eloquently than I do. So thank you for that. I hope you listeners really loved this episode. Again, thank you for bearing with us as we're, you know, I think this is probably not the way we'll do this format every time for interviews, but this opportunity came up to talk to Adrian and we sort of had to jump on it. So we did the best we could with very short notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just am so thankful for her time and so fascinated. So if you liked the episode, we hope you'll let us know. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.